Jesus is Lord of all. Is he Lord over your marriages? You said he's Lord of all, but you didn't give an amen to that. Did you have to think about it? If you were to die today and you had no opportunity to change anything or say anything to anybody, are you in a position right now where you are fine with how your spouse would remember you? Or how your kids would remember you? Are you good with them? Is it right with you and the Lord? Let's pray. Father, today as we... are invited to peel back the curtain of Christ's heart and see inside and understand, O oh Lord, how Jesus himself views the issues of marriage, divorce, remarriage. I pray that our hearts would be inclined to open up to what you have for us. We thank you that you are a loving and, and restoring and forgiving and long-suffering and patient God, but we understand, O oh Lord, that you have set before us the way things are according to your plan and design. You have not hidden your will from us in these matters of relationships, particularly in the matter of marriage, but have made yourself clear. And O oh Lord, we pray this morning as we gather together we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for our rejection of your ways. Forgive us for our rebellious hearts. Forgive us for hard hearts. And build something better in us, O oh Lord. Build something new in us. May this be a day of restoration and, and uh, uh, turning from the way we are and the way we have been. May this be a day to strengthen our resolve in our relationships, in our marriages in particular, as we understand the design of our great God. Not only have you given us design, but you have given us the powerful presence of your Holy Spirit living in us to enable us to undertake, to live the way you've called us to live. Not in our own strength. We fail miserably in our own strength but in your strength and in your power, O oh God. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen. I'm sure in a group this size we have an immense variety of experiences in these matters of marriage and in, in the matter of divorce which is the subject that we will tackle this morning because we find ourselves on a journey with Jesus and he was asked the question of divorce. I want to say that I've walked with people through divorce and I understand from a helper perspective some of the agony and distress and hurt, the rejection, the anger, the... The, we, could, we could sit here and try and describe emotions for the next half hour. And I understand there is no deeper hurt almost anywhere than the issue of divorce. We know that divorce is a death, a death of a dream, a death of something that started out entirely different with entirely different plans. And it's not a clean death whereby someone just dies, but rather it's a death of, that's a living death. It's, it's something that continues emotionally to, to tear at you and, and harass you over the years. Because usually there's so much wrong that has been done, so much that seems unrepaid and unrepaired. It damages our work performance, it messes with our friends and our family units and all that goes with that. Everything becomes awkward and different and wrong and feels wrong. There's a social stigma. There's tensions with custody of children, there's court appearances, there's financial support issues. There's 
no end to the agony. And I don't want to in the least minimize all of that at all today. In fact, the church has been called particularly to walk with people and help people and build people back up. I, I understand all of that. But today, the, the task that has been given to me cannot really spend time on that. I, I can tell you today only what Jesus teaches us about divorce and why he teaches us his position. But I want you to know that in my heart, it's blanketed in grace and, and love and care and all of that. It really is. I mean, in the last few days, I've been myself embroiled in all kinds of stuff that is related to you, the ones I love so much, in this matter of marriage, actually. And so we may be revisiting a little bit deeply buried emotions of troubled hearts today. I understand that and terrible hurt. And the church takes two directions on all of these things. One is that we must, we must and we are called to stand by you and help you. Please find in the church a place to heal and be helped from your hurt. But we also in the church must declare holy war on those things that ruin people's lives, like divorce. And today, I'm going to emphasize the holy war on divorce, because that's what Jesus does. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10, we continue on with the journey of Jesus who is leaving <clears throat> the Galilee region. Mark makes a particular effort to give clear descriptions of where Jesus is specifically. And there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about it later, but I just want to set the stage for it right now. He talks about um, Jesus leaving Galilee and moving to the region of Judea, and in particular, he crosses Jordan, goes to the east side of the Jordan River, which is in the region of Perea. It's modern-day Jordan today. There's a reason he specifically identifies that, and I'll just save it for a moment. But we have Jesus and his entourage moving toward Jerusalem, toward Calvary, toward the cross, toward our salvation. Thank the Lord. So these are the last days. These are, the, these are moving up to the days whereby the, the final teachings of Christ are, are laid out for us in these important things. So let's read the text and then let's look at some things. Jesus then left that place, I'm, I'm Mark 10, verse 1, went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said... Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was, because of your heart, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore... What God has joined together, let man not separate. If you're in the habit of underlining things in your Bible, this would be a good place to underline. When they were in the house, again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of God. Now, you'll notice that the context of this is not cradled in grace. The context of this is a setting of testing. It's an attack. The Pharisees are attempting to trip Jesus up. 
So we shouldn't expect that Jesus is going to react the way he did to the woman caught in adultery or the, the Samaritan woman at the well who had had five husbands and the one she was living with was not her husband. Those were different interactions with Jesus. Those came with a different grace, a different, uh, a different context entirely. This is all-out war. The Pharisees and those who had been fueled by the enemy of our soul, Satan, were, at, were attacking Jesus. Jesus is calling and declaring holy war on divorce right here, right now, and for all time. So we, we have this, this context, but please understand this, that, a, that what still remains as the context of who Jesus is, is this a broken and contrite heart he will not despise or send away, Psalm 51, verse 12. So let's get a little bit of background from, so, so that we can move a little forward in this text. Divorce in, the Old Testament, in Old Testament Israel. There was much controversy about divorce, much as there is today, from church to church, in religious circles. Lots of angst, lots of wrangling, lots of anger. And they couldn't wait to pounce on Jesus when he reached the other side of Jordan. It is there and strategically there that they asked him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the reason that Mark gives us the, the geographical context is important. It's a, there's a whole geopolitical reality that's going on here. For those of you who know a little bit about your New Testament history and a little bit about Jesus' life, you know that it was in the region of Perea that the, uh, the ruling, uh, the ruling um, um, king was Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas is a name that you're familiar with because you're probably familiar with his wife, Herodias. What you probably remember about Herodias is that she at one time was married to Herod Philip. Herod Philip was the brother of Herod Antipas. Herod Philip was divorced by Herodias so that Herodias could marry his brother, Herod Antipas, we would presume, because she liked the fact that her brother-in-law was in power and she wanted to be the queen. So she dumped Herod Philip for Herod Antipas. You also know that a little, bit more about, a little bit more about that story because you know that John the Baptist called them on this. And we all know what happened when John the Baptist called Herodias and Herod Antipas on divorce. Do you remember? Lost his head. It is no accident... Because we learned in the temptation of Christ that Satan went away and waited for an opportune time. This was another one of those opportune times. Jesus was in Herod Antipas land. So go ahead, Jesus. Talk to us about divorce as if they didn't know what he was going to say. Because they wanted him gone like John the Baptist so Jesus could have got all political here to save himself, knowing full well what happened to John the Baptist. But we've never known Jesus to be political, have we? I want to give you a little bit of background about divorce, as I said, in, in Old Testament Israel, just before we get to Jesus' response. Divorce was used as a weapon, much the same as it's used today. Jesus, by the way, was there to teach, and you'll notice that the Pharisees showed up to test. They weren't interested in Jesus' teaching. They were interested in pitting him against Moses or Herod Antipas. Either way, he couldn't win, was their idea. There were lots of divorce positions. There were two big schools at the time, two big schools within religious thought of the Jewish people at the time. There was the school of Shammai, whereby divorce was permitted only on the basis of adultery. There was the school of Hillel, whereby almost 
for any reason a man could divorce his wife. The Pharisees, in particular, followed the school of Hillel. In fact, it's stated that uh, so broad were the uh, eligibility for divorce, the, the school of Hillel, that if you woke up in the morning and your wife burnt your eggs, you could divorce her. Don't know if that applies to anybody here this morning. Did I see that hand? In fact, Rabbi Akiba uttered this statement, if a man finds a woman fairer in his eyes, he may divorce his wife. So in those days, it was what men did to women. Divorce had become a very one-sided weapon in the hands of one partner. Even today, it takes two to marry. It can take one to rip it apart. In Jewish law, a woman was regarded as property of her husband, a chattel. She had no legal rights. It is for this reason that there was drawn up in Deuteronomy some regulations, but we'll get there in a moment. Even today, it's as Jesus, you've re- you've all, we've already read the text and you realize that Jesus <clears throat> puts, puts a weight of, of uh, responsibility on hard-heartedness. Even today, we sit here in this room this morning having been witnesses probably to many weddings, all of us. We've been part of weddings. We maybe are married in here this morning. Do you remember back at the very beginning when you couldn't stand to be away from each other? When you were so madly in love with one another? Your heart was just bursting. Lynn's heart was just bursting, hoping I would call her, sitting by the phone every day, please, please, Lord, have Rick call me. I'm wasting away unless I hear from him. She's not in the room. I didn't say this in the first service. I didn't want her to stand up and object and have a marriage squabble right on the spot. I've presided at so many marriages. I've done so many pre-marriage counseling times and watching them, watching the couple look at each other with big deer eyes, oogling over each other. It's almost sick at times. (laughs) And tragically, I have been part of some that the contrast is unbelievably stark. How does a, just a full heart of love for, for your spouse change to a heart of hate? How does your heart go hard like that? Is this a big issue in Canada, divorce? Maybe you're unaware of some of the numbers. For every 1,000 marriages in Canada, 400 divorce. 400. United States, about 430. We used to be a long way from the U.S. We're catching up. 9% of Canadian population is divorced. 9% of the 37 million of us are divorced. The average length of a marriage in Canada is 14 years. The seventh year being particularly challenging. The The average age of divorce in Canada is 45 years of age for a man, 42 years of age for a woman. Every 10 minutes, a divorce happens in Canada. Every single 10 minutes. 
there's a divorce in Canada. There'll be five divorces by the time I'm finished this sermon. You'd like to think that this is a phenomenon outside of Christianity, outside of the church. Well, this is a jaw-dropper. Tragically, a study was done in 2014 by Baylor, at Baylor University. It was picked up by the Vancouver Sun in a newspaper article February 4th, 2014. It was searching to discover in this study what subgroup, what subculture within the American culture divorced most. You're going to say to me, surely not us. Surely not the evangelical church. Yeah, the study in Baylor University discovered that the subgroup in the U.S. most likely to divorce is white conservative Protestants. That's evangelicals. The national average in the U.S. is 14.2% of the population is divorced. The percentage of divorce in the white conservative Protestant church is 17.5%. Now, there are a number of possibilities when you get statistics and roll those out that, that can skew results. Number one, it could be that people who go through a divorce run to church and skew our numbers. If that's the reason, then thank God. It could be also because those outside of church are no longer really marrying. They're just living together, and so the numbers are actually quite skewed. Nevertheless, statistically, 17.5% of us, the population of the U.S., I don't know what Canadian, Canada does, just doesn't track religious stuff much. So ours could be even worse are divorced. 17.5% of the evangelical population of the U.S. are divorced. In case you're wondering if you're heading for one, it is normal to have about four minor, minor squabbles per month. Major reason for divorce, number one, infidelity, two, money, three, communication. Interestingly, abuse doesn't come up until number 10. Some think it's so far up the line, it's not. Addictions, 11. And irreconcilable differences, number 16. By the way, if irreconcilable differences qualify for divorce, every marriage qualifies for divorce. There's a man and there's a woman in a marriage. That means irreconcilable differences. Right there. So it's a mess. It is what Satan uses in terms of a weapon. It is what Satan uses to undermine God's society. Do you realize that, that Satan wants all of our marriages to end in divorce? There is a, there's a price on your head the enemy wants your marriage dead. Pay attention to what's under siege in our country. Contrary to popular opinion, the ultimate end to human society is not the unimaginable possibility of a zombie apocalypse. And no, it's not the coronavirus, and no, it's not climate change. It's the dissolution of the family. That's what Satan is really after. He's after biblical manhood. He's after biblical womanhood. He's after your children. He's after your relationship with your children. He's after the, the, the way we raise our children. He's after children before they're even born. I don't know if you remember this or not, but in 2005, if you were here, we had a, we had a conference here at our church a rally for traditional marriage that the then MPP, Jerry Willette, helped me to put together. 
I have a picture. Can we get a close-up of that? In this picture, you will see a representation of all kinds of MPs and MPPs from our region, both liberal and conservative. There were no NDPs in power at the time. John O'Toole was there, Aaron O'Toole's father. It was hosted and, and keynote speaker by Reverend David Maines of one on Huntley Street, and Michael Corrin, the journalist, TV, radio personality, before he lost his mind, was here. Every stripe, liberal, conservative, our mayor, John Gray, our MP, our current MP, Colin Carey, all were speaking out for traditional marriage, 2005. In the UK this weekend, or this week, Franklin Graham was not allowed to have a meeting in Sheffield, England, not allowed to have a meeting in Liverpool, England, not allowed to have a meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. In fact, the Bishop of the Church of Scotland signed a petition to prevent Franklin Graham from speaking in Glasgow. A Bishop of the Church of Scotland because of his position on marriage as God has designed it. It's divisive. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we are 15 years past and that small window of time, things have radically changed. What is it going to be like 15 years from now? <clears throat> Divorcing for the purpose of remarrying is adultery, Jesus says. Because in truth, the Pharisees came to him because they wanted to rid themselves of their wives. And they wanted to wiggle around the seventh commandment and do it. And they came up with the bright idea, of course we can't have a mistress. Of course we can't adulterate our marriage. But here's what we can do. We can divorce our wife and go and marry someone else and call it, call it divorce, not adultery. Jesus wasn't having it. Jesus was not going to make it so that you could get out of the seventh commandment by breaking your marriage bonds and going and marrying someone else. And for this, they were pushing him. So Jesus did what he always does. He answers a question with a question. Try it. It's good. It works. So he asks them this question. What did Moses command you? They asked him, is it lawful to, for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Now be careful here, guys, before you answer. Be very careful, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you who know the scriptures, the holy scriptures. Be very careful. Moses wrote more than Deuteronomy. So when we're talking about marriage and we're talking about design, guys, what did Moses command you? And you have the option of going anywhere between Genesis and Deuteronomy. You can find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now you tell me, you answer me the question. And so they jump all over the opportunity. They take the bait because when you try to debate Jesus, you bring a losing mind every time. So they go to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. In Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, it states there that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. If he finds something indecent in her. We are, there is more written on that than you can imagine, so to be specific and to settle on an idea is very difficult. What does it mean, something indecent? Have you found something indecent? Does burning your eggs in the morning qualify? Hardly. 
The word there is something shameful. It, 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 it's, it's a matter of uncleanness. It, it's, it sort of describes as, as something that's, that, that has related to the word nakedness. So Jesus is saying to them, I gave you the opportunity to come to me with something that Moses commanded with respect to marriage, and you choose the place of sin. You choose the place of hard hearts. That's going to be your gem in the crown of marriage. He answers the question, yes, Moses wrote that, but he wrote it because of the hearts, because your hearts were hard, because of the hardness of your hearts, because of your sinful, God-rebelling hearts. Moses wrote a regulation to somehow regulate the extreme hardness of a man's heart toward his wife. And there's every likelihood, by the way, that this something indecent that was found has to do with during the betrothal period where she was supposed to be proven to be a virgin. So that we talked about this at Christmas with Joseph and Mary. We talked about the fact that there were inheritance rights. There were issues. There needed to be regulations. They need to regulate sin, manage sin. And so this was described here. This is what, what, what we were talking about here. Basically, Jesus says, why did, did Moses allow this? He allowed it legally because hard hearts require structures to mitigate more wicked social damage toward their wives. Two chapters before, it certainly couldn't be for the cause of adultery. Two chapters before, in Deuteronomy 22 and in Leviticus... Chapter 20, adultery was already punishable by death. And presumably, of course, if she's sent away, she's going to be remarried. Because there was no social safety net then. And, and that's why if you read the text, she, if, if she, her, her next husband sends her away, she can't come back to her first husband because it would be an abomination in Israel. Why? Because she's already now adulterated the marriage by becoming remarried. It's very, very convoluted when people's hearts are sinful. And so Jesus then drives their hearts toward where, what they should have said, where they should have landed. He says, yes, Moses wrote you this law, and then he says, but, I would circle that word, but, so you, re you received a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard, great, and Moses regulated the hardness of your hearts, but, this is not the design of God, this is not the plan of God, this is not what God had in mind. In the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Let's stop there. Jesus says, yet legally, Moses regulated sinfulness. But I have come not to affirm the regulations for sinfulness, but to fulfill the will of the Father in heaven and give deeper and nuanced meaning to the Old Testament, the writings of Scripture. You regularly heard Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say. So Jesus is saying here, but that's not the design for marriage. Marriage is not made for divorce. Lawfully, God's design for marriage is permanence. So Jesus is literally saying here, legally, Moses wrote you a regulation, but lawfully, it is wrong to divorce your wife. In other words, you're, answer, you're asking me the question, if it's lawful to divorce your wife, my answer is no, it's not. It may be legal, but it's not lawful. We face that all the time in, in, in our world. It is legal in this country for same-sex people to marry, but it's not lawful. This is the law. This is what makes something lawful. It may be legal for you to go home after this service and get cold drunk 
in your house, but it's not lawful. It may be legal for you to go and smoke a joint in your house after the service and get stoned out of your mind. It's not lawful. Jesus has come to present new creation kingdom principles based on the design of God. This is not the way it's going to be in my kingdom, Jesus says. He points out here that, that marriage is designed this way and it's, in, 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 it's not changeable. In the beginning, God created and made them male and female. Marriage is one biological at birth man marrying one biological at birth woman to the exclusion of all others for life. That's the design. That's what's lawful according to God, according to his word. So that's why Jesus could say, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, why is he adamant about that? And, the, and by the way, he gives us this new command. Th this is the new command. What God has joined together, and your marriage is it. And by the way, not just church marriages, not just Christian marriages, marriage every place in the world. What God has joined together Man is not authorized to take apart. Not in any church policy. Not any pastor. No clergy. Not you. People are not authorized lawfully to take apart what God has put together. And he sources it on the design of God to bring two people together in one flesh. This is a powerful, powerful description of which we take completely lightly. Our sexual union in marriage is a mystical union that is beyond physical to the spiritual whereby God unites a man and a woman in a special bond that he deems unbreakable. It's a covenant bond. And there's a reason for this one flesh reality. It has everything to do with the description of who God is. God wants to be worshipped for who he is. We worship God when we worship him in spirit and in truth. When the Holy Spirit leads us in truth, we know that we are worshipping who God really is and therefore we are worshipping properly. Our marriage union, our one flesh, establishes who God really is to us. It it illustrates the Trinity relationship, God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit, and his covenant relationship with his people. It is interesting to know that in the choice of the Hebrew word for divorce, that the word itself means to cut. You're saying, yeah, okay, so what? Well, here's the thing. Whenever the Hebrew writing was talking about a covenant, berith, covenant with God, it would use the word to cut a covenant, karath berith, karathath, karathath, sounds weird, but it's, I'm sorry, it's Hebrew, what can I say, is divorce in Hebrew, karathath. It's the cutting away the whole picture of our covenant with God was pictured for us with Abraham and the sacrifice in Genesis 15, whereby Abraham cut the animals in half and laid them out, and the presence of God went down between them, and God was literally saying, I'm in covenant with you, Abraham, and for me to break covenant with you, I would have to be as one of these animals, dead. And since God can't die, beloved... 
His covenant with you through Jesus Christ is unbreakable. And our marriages were made to show uh, each other and the world what a covenant with God looks like. It can't be broken. The power of this covenant that we have with him is demonstrated so, so much so that God did not create a man and then say, hmm, what am I going to do next? I know. I think I'll create a woman. Now, what am I going to do with the two of them? Hmm. I got to find something for them to do that interacts. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll put them together as one flesh. If you think that's the way creation happened, you are completely mistaken. The creation that God produced was based on the theological realities he wanted to illustrate. The one union, one flesh didn't happen as an afterthought. It was the thought. Our marriage and our union was God's thought for humanity. And he brought us together and knit us together to demonstrate who he is in covenant with us. This is why Jesus can't surrender at all to the Pharisees, the Shammai, the Hillel. He can't, he can't surrender any of this. It breaks the design of God. It, it absolutely explodes and interrupts the picture of who God is so that people start to worship a God of their own making. They don't know who God is. You look around at people who've so abominated relationships between men and women, so ruined it that people don't really know who God is. And this gives us great comfort in our salvation. Because the, the, the God who will not allow our marriages to break lawfully is the same God who, for the reason of that creation, has stated to us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will never cut you loose, I will never turn aside to another person, turn you away and, and, and go to another person, I will never send you away, I will remain in covenant, a loving covenant with you forever. So God's glorious design and creation makes no place for dividing up one flesh in this life. It does not. Because it's one flesh, and God has joined it together and made it happen, and he will not authorize humans to take apart what he has put together. So we've looked at the Old Testament. I want to give you a quick, brief look at the New Testament and say, is it any different in the New Testament context? No, Jesus is now bridging the text. He's bridging the eras. He's now giving full, rich, deep meaning to what new creation theology is going to look like, what new creation anthropology, <laughs> that's easy for you to say, anthropology will look like. And it is this. This is the rule, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I lay down in all the churches, including Calvary Baptist Church, Oshawa. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. I'll just give you a quick outline. A wife must not separate or leave her husband. If she does, she must remain single or be reconciled. Two, a man must not leave, abandon, send away, divorce his wife. Exactly what Jesus is saying. Third, a Christian must not abandon an unbeliever. Presumably, if you're married to an unbeliever, you are not permitted to abandon that unbeliever. But if the unbeliever abandons you, then the believer is, as the text says, not bound. Lots of ink is spilled over what not bound means. It can mean one of two things, I think, primarily. 
It either means you're not bound to fight for that marriage at all costs because you're to live at peace. Quite honestly, I see that as a pretty strong case because when you're using the word bound, it's, about, it's a word that was used for slavery. Paul is hardly going to, to um, illustrate marriage as an enslavement that you're now freed from. The other possible meaning is that you're not bound to the marriage, so therefore you're free to remarry. That's a popular position. I would submit to you there is no direct permission for remarriage unless a spouse dies in the scriptures. Divorce and remarriage prior to salvation is washed clean by the blood of Christ. Everything meets at the cross, beloved. All of our sins, all of our failures, all of our flaws... All of our ignoring of God's ways meets at the cross. To go and sin no more, as Jesus said. And our sins committed after salvation are covered by the same blood through repentance and forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now to live a holy life. And let me just close by saying this. Our Christian pro-family rhetoric rings hollow in the ears of those in our culture when we treat our family relationships with such a cavalier, in such a cavalier way. We hardly have a very strong voice to take to the community outside that is abominating everything that's right about God's design and tell them that they're getting it wrong when we can't get it right. Now, I'm not going to stop preaching the truth or preaching the gospel until we get it right, but I'm just saying to us, I'm appealing to us, we need to be pretty careful about how we're chirping at the culture while our own lives are a mess. They have every right to turn around to us and say, don't sin yourselves. Physicians, heal yourselves. Beloved, I I'm putting an appeal out to us. This is God's beautiful design. Hold on to it with everything that you have. Hold tight to it. Work through your issues with your spouse. Don't give up. God will help you. Because God is decidedly pro-marriage as originally designed, and there is no wiggle room whatsoever. Father, you have made it clear in your text what you want for, for us. You want God's very best for us. God's very best is His design, His enduring design for marriage. One biological at birth man married to one biological at birth woman living together as one flesh until they die. God help us to herald and hold to that standard, not to be pharisaical or legalistic, but Lord God, to realize that in the cradle of your grace at the cross, you have made it possible for us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Perhaps the presentation of God's word shocked you this morning. I didn't actually share with you the disciples' reaction to Jesus' teaching. But I can tell you this, their jaws dropped and their mouths opened wide. In both Mark and Matthew's account, and in particular Matthew's account, the disciples hurry him off into a house and ask him about these things because they were caught off guard by 
the position that Jesus took, which was marriage is about the design, not about the dissolution of marriage. They asked him, well, then who can get married? The restrictions are too difficult. And Jesus said to them, not everybody can. But to those who can, this is the way. Loved, I don't know all of your history for sure. I don't know how, what you've brought to the gathering this morning. But I want to assure you again, there is compassion and help and grace at the cross. There is healing with Christ. He bids you come to him. For those of you holding on barely, don't let go. Get help. Seek help and make certain that you trust in the power and presence of God to hold that marriage together. We have a partnership with David and Linda Hulse with respect to marriage. I highly endorse the ministry they have. Marriage is that important. It is that important for us. And then for those of you who are newer in marriage, do everything you can every day of your life to build your marriage, to build your relationship with your spouse, to live holy lives. What was stated here last Saturday is true. The greatest gift you can give to your spouse is holiness. Two people living a holy life before Jesus Christ will make the journey to the end guaranteed. Father, I pray for our marriages. And I ask, oh God, that you would help us to settle for nothing less than your great design because that's what you have for us. That is the best you have for us. Help us to settle for nothing less than the best, oh God. And if we have failed, I pray, oh God, that you will pick us up and let us henceforth move forward aiming at the best, no matter what. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.